0: I think sometimes the singular dominant narrative can make a lot of people give up. So, for example, on climate change, if people start to write that uh, 1.5 degrees is not feasible, that may make a lot of people want to give up on climate action, on changing their own behaviours and stuff like that. That's why it's important to have multiple narratives or different perspectives that inform that singular dominant narrative. It's just all about staying connected and hopeful and not giving up.
1: Hello, I'm Denise Withers, and you're listening to Forward, an interview series where today's leaders reveal how they use stories to make change and shape the future. If you need a new way to move forward towards your goals, then stay tuned, because I have just the story, for you. Inspiring action on big issues like climate change can be incredibly tough. Challenges from disinformation to discouragement can make even the most responsible citizens apathetic. So how can we use stories to build trust and momentum? That's what we're going to explore today with strategic communications consultant, writer and coach, Denise Young. For the past decade, Denise has worked internationally on changing the way scientists connect with policymakers and the media, mostly around climate change and sustainability. To do that, she draws on years of experience reporting on finance and markets across Asia, North America, and Europe for Reuters and Agence France Press. She's joining us today from her home in Paris, France, and I can't wait to find out more about her
0: work. So welcome, Denise. Thank you for having me, Denise. It's great to be talking to, you know, someone who has the same name.
1: <laughs> and that's true. It's never happened to me before. Hopefully we don't confuse each other. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when I look at the work you've done over your career, you've had tremendous success using stories to shift behavior and inspire action across different industries and contexts. And that kind of expertise is something that we desperately need to tackle today's crises like the pandemic or climate change. So can you start us off by telling us why you decided to focus your story work on such a difficult subject?
0: Oh, yes, that's a great question, actually. I decided to focus on this kind of intersection between climate change and finance because I had seen that the the reporting that is done on this field of green finance, sustainable finance, is mostly done by mainstream financial media that is consumed by, I would say, people over the age of 40 or people who invest, who who come from kind of like a pre-baby like boomers and and just below that. And so there is like a, a very singular narrative right? When you have a slightly niche specialist field, and it's really only covered by a small range of media outlets, that tends to make the singular narrative take hold and sort of become the dominant narrative. And that crowds out actually everything that's interesting about that. And so that's what I find interesting. I like looking for whether it's reporting or storytelling or writing for clients as well. It's like, what is the thing that may not be quite so obvious that will help us to look at this thing in a slightly different way? And and maybe that that thing can help us to either become more empowered or to leverage some thing for action or change that may not be so obvious.
1: That's very cool. This idea of shining a light on alternative narratives as a way to invite change What made you choose to do that in your work?
0: Yeah, because I think sometimes the singular dominant narrative can make a lot of people give up. So, for example, on climate change, if people start to write that uh, 1.5 degrees is not feasible and that may make a lot of people want to give up on climate change, on climate action, on their own changing their own behaviors, on voting, being very careful about who they vote for on this issue and stuff like that. Right. And so that's why it's important to have multiple narratives or different perspectives that inform that singular dominant narrative. It's just all about staying connected and hopeful and not giving up.
1: That really is the big challenge, isn't it? So how are you doing this work? What kinds of storytelling are you working on?
0: so I discovered the podcast last year, and I have my own podcast, which is focused on climate change and finance. It's called uh, New Climate Capitalism. So that was a really fun learning project for me because I came from text journalism originally, and I'd never done audio before. But the playing field is wide open to everyone these days with all the tools Otherwise, I I write articles also about climate change and finance. I do some facilitation work. I do communications consulting work as well. And so I guess all of those things involve different aspects of storytelling, but I'm not consciously aware of it. You know, I came from journalism and we were trained as craftspeople. We weren't trained as storytellers. But I guess in the last 20 years, all of the arts, right, of whether it's reporting the facts, you know, writing opinion, doing sales, marketing, doing propaganda, doing kind of full-on manipulation, all of these things have kind of generically been rebranded as storytelling. Right. And so
1: who are you telling stories for now at this point? Who are your clients? Who are you bringing the stories to? How are you affecting change with your stories?
0: So the people I suppose who listen to my podcast and subscribe to my newsletter are people who are probably coming from a range of either they are financial practitioners who are interested in ESG investing and green finance, or more broadly, people from my own professional networks who either come out of research backgrounds or civil society, climate action backgrounds and felt a curiosity or a need to learn a bit more about the finance piece of climate action. And often coming very sceptical, like it, it seems like Greenwash, all these claims being made by banks, companies, and so on, that they're green, that they're offsetting, that they're doing this and that, and wanting to find out, sort of what's real and what's not. And I certainly don't have the answer to those things, but I've been very fortunate to be able to talk to a lot of guests who are are looking at many, many different aspects of this problem.
1: And so you're bringing them different perspectives, different stories, different narratives, but it sounds like you're still maintaining your journalistic integrity where you're not bringing a point of view and you're inviting the audience to make their own interpretation.
0: (laughs) I, I mean, Yes, I guess so. I think journalism is really actually incredible training. And when I was a journalist, I didn't think that. I worked at Reuters. It, it was, it is, I suppose, still a massive machine. And I was trained on a typewriter. And there were all these aspects that sort of very much like a craft, right, where you learn skills, but you also learn a kind of an ethos. And you learn to be the point of view from nowhere, especially when you work for a wire service, right? You just um, have to be very fast. You have to be accurate. Um, you have to be able to have a you know basic level of style. And so that training stays with you all of your life, except that the world has changed so much. The internet came along and suddenly you didn't have to work for a media organization. You could reach people just by yourself in many different ways. There's so much disintermediation. And But most importantly, from a storytelling perspective, is that nobody can really take the view from nowhere anymore. Even the people who, you know, are really supposed to be doing that, reporting, the, you know, take the view from nowhere, they, they're also taking a view. As soon as they have an account on Twitter and they say or they do anything, they are taking a point of view.
1: That's really interesting. So what are the implications of that when we think about using story as a tool to inspire climate action? Gosh,
0: I... Uh, I really don't know.
1: (laughs) That's a big question.
0: (laughs) It's a really big question. I mean, everyone is an editor these days, right? In a way, because in the past, your information diet was curated and dictated by these people behind the scenes who were news editors. But now... Everyone edits their own news feed. They choose what they want to open and what goes in. And
1: And not only that, you know, social media, the algorithms in many ways are also editing what we see as well. And so that leaves me to wonder about something which I actually don't talk about that much, which is the darker side of story that you and I chatted about briefly, this Uh idea. Because stories have the power to control what we think and what we say and what Uh we do, they absolutely have the power to be used for evil in the simplest terms. And so when you think about things like greenwashing, what can we do as storytellers to try to reassure people that we are as best as possible trying to bring them truth?
0: Yeah, truth is becoming more and more elusive and, you know, trust is it's very hard for anyone right to trust any source of information anymore. Like 10 years ago people were not trusting their politicians. Now People have trouble trusting each other. So how can I say this? I, like I can have an intention to present something in a fact-based way or as truthfully as I possibly can, but I don't have any guarantee that I'm going to succeed ever, I think, in today's world.
1: So that cycles me back around to thinking about this idea of scientific storytelling. And I know you worked quite a lot in that sphere. So is there something about, you know, saying that you're telling stories on behalf of or with scientists that you think does inspire trust?
0: Yeah. I mean, if as the storyteller, the communicator, the scribe, the translator, whatever you are, if the scientist signs off on what you've done... And it's a hard process to get that sign off. It can be incredibly painful. It can involve many, many people, lots and lots of comments and feedback and points of view that are difficult to reconcile. But when you get to the, the finish line and you get the green light from the scientist or scientists, plural, to go out into the world with that thing, that's as close to a, a trustworthy thing as you can get, I'd say. And I think one of the most interesting things is that in the last 10 years, the scientists themselves are getting actually pretty awesome at doing their own storytelling. And that makes me happy. Like the less they need to rely on people like myself, the better off we are all going to be because it's just much more powerful when it comes from them. And I mean, platforms like Twitter have been... Really incredible. Just in the last couple of years, as Twitter threads have become such a big thing, the scientists who have gotten very skilled at Twitter threads are just reaching so many people. And it's extremely powerful. For example, the IPCC released the first part of their physical assessment over the summer and the media covered it in a pretty gloomy way, which is their job to do that, to put it into context. And once you put it into a sort of a specific context, it comes out super gloomy. But the scientists who worked on the report had the overview, right, of the whole thing. And one UK climate scientist in particular, he did just two tweets. One was a slide of the bad news and one was a slide of the good news. And so there was bad and good news in equal parts. And this was just incredibly powerful. All the people I shared this with just on a personal basis, it changed their perception and made them feel just more empowered to keep informing themselves rather than to block it out. Well,
1: and tell me more about that need for good news stories, because my personal kind of theory of change is that one of the reasons we're having such a hard time selling climate action is that we're telling the wrong stories. We're only telling the negative stories. So tell me more about how that's playing out in your work.
0: So this is not something I'm expert in. I mean, there's a thing called solutions journalism and they tell stories about solutions and they do less of the apocalyptic contextualization. I think in the past communicators trained scientists to focus on urgency, but I think that we're moving into a new cycle where scientists have internalized how damaging it is for messages to be completely 100% negative and are getting more and more skilled at teasing out the nuance of, well, you know, this could be promising or have potential, but it's contingent on this thing. In a way, they've trained themselves to be much more resonant with policymakers and probably still have a learning curve with the general public.
1: It's fantastic to see science communication and journalism start to gain some traction, though I think we still have a long way to go in North America, where even in the post-Trump era, I'm sad to say we still see rhetoric overpower science. So as we continue to explore solutions or you know other positive ways to inspire climate action, I was really intrigued to learn about your climate narrative circle. Can you tell us what that was about?
0: Oh gosh, so this was an experiment that I did with a partner. She's Swedish, and she's based in Paris, and her name's Stina Heikula. And we were inspired by Bruno Latour, who is a famous French sociologist. And he's very influential in France on climate change now, and is sort of a public intellectual. And he, he made a sort of a call to action, which was published in the French media, saying that everybody is lost and confused when it comes to climate change. Nobody really knows what to do. Nobody knows who to listen to or which way, you know, to go. And so people should just gather in small circles, you know, small groups, and start from the beginning, kind of do a stock take on what they care about, what they want to work hard to preserve and hold on to, what they're willing to let go of, and to allow themselves to be guided in that way. And so it's kind of a much more bottom-up approach to figuring out How are we doing at the personal level on climate change and climate anxiety and and action? And and then moving from there, once you've got a a better sense on how your personal values connect to what you're able and willing to do to the sort of the bigger picture of your city and the people you vote for, your mayor and the political party that you vote for, the businesses that you spend your money on, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And so then we were also very inspired because this was late 2019. So we're still in the the Greta Thunberg activism cycle. And so we wanted to hold these circles with young people, people in their early twenties who were master's students. And so we found a host, which was at the CRI, which is the Centre for Interdisciplinary Research here in Paris. And so we made it a combination of different things, people sitting in a circle reading out loud and then doing some journaling in silence and then kind of sharing what comes up from that afterwards. And many people are doing different variants of this type of exercise. I think what was um, interesting about this one was reading out loud we discovered this people don't sit in groups and read out loud to each other anymore and it was very powerful
1: it's a really interesting concept and and thinking back to the original call to action it almost sounds like a call to in a localized way design the future that you want
0: oh that's right yeah
1: Right. And so, what kind of response did you have from the participants?
0: I mean, they were incredible. You know, professionally, I don't get to work with people of that age. And so, it was just a gift to be in an intimate, kind of safe space with those people. They were coming from all over the world. There were students in there from Europe, from France, from Spain, from Belgium, but also from India. And so, we chose some texts. There was poetry, there was fiction, there was a, a commentary from Science Magazine, there was kind of a range of stuff. There was a speech from and Greta and I guess basically what really blew both of us away was like both of us work on sort of sustainable development and stuff like that and for work you have to read a lot of reports and pdfs and things like that and so people are working on these subjects what is the world going to look like in 2030 what would we like it to look like what should it be what are the pathways and the scenarios but this group of incredible 23 year olds at the level of values they are already kind of physically embodied in the future right? And it was incredibly moving. They were much more collective minded, for example, than people of my generation. They really had made enormous efforts to cut their consumption down as close to zero as they possibly can. They really care about human relationships and being together. They really don't care about accumulating assets and wealth and property and cars and things like that. And they're just very, very extremely present in the moment. It
1: sounds like the emergence of a a new culture driven by stories and people who are not necessarily encumbered by the same stories of the past that we are.
0: Yes, I felt very liberating sort of inhabiting their space, being allowed to see up close what their values are.
1: And so what do you think we need to do to encourage more of this story making or future making, you know, with stories?
0: Gosh, well, so the first one we did was in person, which was fantastic. And this was right before the lockdown of March 2020. And we designed it as a series of three. The next two were online. And so it was just not the same, right? We didn't have the same energy, the same level of engagement. You know, the second one was uh, just like a far cry from the first one. And then I think in the third one, we sort of found a middle ground, which was halfway as... Exciting as the first one. And since then, we haven't had any more because we were doing different things, but it was just hard to imagine doing that in in virtual format because it was, you know, it's quite intense.
1: Yeah, I can imagine, despite all the advances we've made in technology-mediated storytelling, like the 3D VR climate storytelling work I explored in my last podcast, there really is nothing like a face-to-face experience. So looking ahead for you, what story projects or narrative projects do you have coming up that you're excited about?
0: So I I have a newsletter, which is actually called Climate Narratives Annotated, but I'm going to be rebranding it because I think the name is too long. And actually, the word narrative, I find, is a bit abstract for people, right? Like the word story is probably fairly accessible, but the word narrative, somehow many people switch off, I think. I don't know if you agree with that statement.
1: Oh, I do. That's another whole podcast episode right there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And why is that? Why does the word narrative make people fall asleep? Yeah, I mean,
1: my take on it is that people think it's too academic. The other thing for me, just quick aside, in in my own definitions, the way that I work, a narrative connects a collection of stories that are related in a specific way. Mm -hmm. So there's the narrative of climate change, or there's the narrative of gay marriage legislation, or there's the narrative of your life, which is the collection of all the stories that make up the things that went on in your life. So each story being a specific or discrete event. And so for me, because narratives are open-ended and ongoing, they're not as compelling as stories which have this beginning, middle, and end and some kind of dramatic conflict in them.
0: Right, and I mean, I want to say something about the transition from being a journalist to writing newsletters, because this relates back to what we talked about earlier, which was the view from nowhere. And you've seen this, there are tons of very famous A-list journalists who are now making a living on platforms like Substack, writing newsletters. But what it does to sort of the information flow is that you have to be quite opinionated. You have to have a very strong view on something when you write a newsletter. And Quite often when it comes to climate change, right, the most read newsletter on Substack on climate is Emily Atkins' Heated. And it's very much about being angry, you know. So somehow in order to reach people today, there is some aspect of emotion and, and, and anger and opinion that that goes into the mix. Whereas I think before, opinions that were kind of published on opinion pages of prestigious newspapers were sort of probably much colder and, and so now the newsletter writing becomes almost like activism.
1: I think that's a really excellent point. And I think we can take that up a level and look at corporate communications, you know, for decades, bringing any kind of emotion or personal storytelling or vulnerability into corporate communications was absolutely forbidden. You needed to be very cold and fact-based. And as we see more and more license for storytelling and more and more call for leaders to be human and organizations to have a purpose and to take a san- stand at society, I think we're really opening the door up for everybody in an organization to embrace storytelling and to bring more of themselves to work. So I think that's a massive cultural shift that we're seeing that's being fueled by our communication style.
0: Yeah, it's true. So many things that in the past were considered unprofessional and unconscionable have become the norm of what expected.
1: Absolutely. And and I think that's why we're seeing such a big demand for leadership storytelling as well. Mm. Um, so I, I want to end with your thoughts, maybe a little bit more on this idea of the view from nowhere, because I'm really intrigued by that. When we look at the challenge of inspiring climate action, What are we going to need to do in terms of shifting the kind of stories we've been telling from being focused on facts and figures to being focused on the human story of climate change?
0: Right. So I want to give the example of a climate scientist who's a good friend of mine called Kim Nicholas, and she just wrote a wonderful book that is for normal people called... Under the Sky We Make. And she writes a newsletter as well, which is I think called We Can Fix It. And so she deals with that really admirably. Like her newsletter is structured into climate action facts, feelings and action. And so I I just think this is the way forward is that she is one human being, but she's having to juggle all of these things constantly right? She's having to keep up with the science, write scientific papers herself, but also she's a human, she has feelings, and she also needs to act on the basis of the, the, the previous two things, right? What are her feelings telling her to do in her personal life, in her actions, and, and what do the facts say? And so how, how do you make sense of that as a human being? It's actually really difficult. So because she's a scientist, she is able to very articulately box those three things out, but in reality, these things are, are constantly there and she has to juggle and sort and, and, and manage and prioritize across these things.
1: She does. And I love that. And I'd love to uh, get the link from you to include in the show notes. For me, that's a really interesting example of what I'm calling in my work, narrative intelligence, which is really kind of the director of our life story. And and the way it works is by constantly tapping into all the stories that we tell ourselves, which include our facts and our figures and our past experiences and drawing on those to inform our decisions and our actions. And so it almost works like the scientific method in many ways where we get an idea, we take action, we try it out, we get some feedback on whether it worked or not, and then we iterate and we, we try again. And that continues to fuel the stories that we tell ourselves. And so, yeah, I'd love to take a look at her work and see how she's framing that. I think that's a really powerful approach.
0: Cool. Right. And so that's definitely not the view from nowhere, right? Like, the fact based stuff is is rigorous, and it's communicated well, but she doesn't sort of try to hide behind a screen and say, I'm the neutral scientist. She acknowledges the fact that she's a human.
1: And I I think we need more of that. That's fantastic. Denise, thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. I know I threw some really hard questions at you that I honestly don't know the answer to it, and I just wanted to get them out there, but I really appreciate you taking the time to dive in and have this exploration
0: with me. No, thank you so much. It was really fun talking about this.
1: Well, I'm going to look forward to uh, following your podcast and your newsletter and seeing where you take your work in the future. Uh Uh-huh. Thank you. You've been listening to Forward, a podcast about how leaders use stories to shape the future. If you'd like to know more about how story design can help you develop and sell your big idea, get in touch at denisewithers.com.